Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, what is the worst map that you've ever created or had to use? Hmm. Oh, man. I don't know. I love to draw maps. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like all the maps that I've created have been brilliant. And, and, and these really are maps helpful. like how to get to, how to get house, to places. How to get to places. Yeah, yeah. I'm not like a cartographer on the side or anything. But no, I don't. I don't feel like I've done anything too crazy. My daughter recently created a map, and um, I was pretty impressed. Uh, she had China, the United States as like a blue blob, um, Europe as a yellow blob, and then Butterfly Land. Wow. Butterfly. <laughs> yeah, they had little wings. Um, so I don't know. I wouldn't say that's the worst map, but I don't think it was very practical. Still, it's, it's interesting, and, and we'll have to think about Butterfly Land as we, uh, as we dive into this podcast, as we talk about brain, our brains and maps and how this map ends up informing uh, the, the world around us. Um, when I think of bad maps I've had to use, probably the worst was when uh, was it, uh, Yosemite National Park. Mm-hmm. There's like just a map that was hand, not an official map. It was like handed out, like maybe by somebody at the hotel that had uh, that showed different uh, locations around this little uh, uh, town, uh, different trails, and none of it was really to scale. So you got a really warped sense of distance uh, when you tried to go out and and, uh, and traverse any of this. I will say, map uh, ho- or hotel maps are pretty bad because they just want to show you the landmarks. Yeah, and they just are like, that's all that tourists really care about. They'll they'll figure it out. On Don't worry island. about the distances. Don't worry about uh, whether it's walkable or you need to uh, set aside a day to travel this distance. Just uh, just take our word for it that it's there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll see it just like on the map. This huge thing just on the horizon. Um, so, of course, yes, we're talking about maps today. We're talking about how we um, have our own sort of autobiographical element to, to maps that we'll talk about. And um, we should probably kick this off with allegorical maps. Yes, allegorical maps. Maps that are not so much of places. Uh, I mean, they can be of places, but they're, they're about much more than that. Uh, when, when, you, when you put in a location into Google Maps or Apple Maps or whatever you're using, uh, generally you're getting a, a pretty ironed out idea of where point A is in relation to point B, mm-hmm. between two physical locations. With an allegorical map, uh, point A and point B may not be things that are precisely real. They might be states of mind, states of being. Uh, they might one point A might exist in this world. Point B might exist in some uh, mythical other world. Yeah, I was actually thinking about this in terms of Dante, um, mm-hmm. particularly when I when I thought back to our previous podcast that dealt with the sins and his sort of allegorical map of how you are traversing this mountain until you can, you know, scale all these different sins yes. and, yeah, and wash yourself yeah. of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, certainly with his, his map of hell, he relied on a lot of, of older maps and models. Uh, people have been sort of trying to figure out what the what, what a hell might look like and mapping that out for some time. Uh, but purgatory is certainly more of a purely allegorical map because it's about a, it's, it's more precisely about this journey from a state of, of sin, but, you know, acceptable level of sin, uh, through cleanliness up the mountain and into heaven. So it's about uh, the journey of the human soul. 
And there's another allegorical map I wanted to mention, and uh, this one is called The Road to Success. And apparently this was really popular circa 1910. Uh-huh. I love this map. It is in a book called Maphead by Ken Jennings. Yes, that Ken Jennings. Jeopardy. Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it depicts an actual road winding up a mountain in a similar way that, that Dante uh, considered the landscape. And success is uh, depicted as a leer at the very top. But at the bottom, all these different things you have to go through that might uh, prevent you from having success, including bohemianism bohemianism Mm -hmm. at the base (laughs) of this mountain. And it looks like a beer garden. Yes, it it looks like a fun place you might stop in. But his his whole argument, if you stop in there, you might never leave. Right. You might. I mean, you can't even get up to the, you know, halfway up the mountain, right? It looks a lot more attractive than the pit of illiteracy. The pit of illiteracy, (laughs) Which just shows like tiny figures plummeting into this dark abyss. There's also the Mutual Admiration Society in which, and this is what I love because it really is in the spirit of the times, uh, people are telling each other things like, you'll set the world on fire. You're a wonder, my boy. <laughs> um, so, you know, you can get caught up in that. Uh, but anyway, you go up and up and up and you go through true knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, of course, have to traverse lack of preparation until you go through the gate of ideals, and finally you have found success. It should be a board game because it reminds me a lot of uh, the game of life, which in, in, its, in, its, in its own sense is kind of an allegorical map uh, transformed into a board game. Well, and that's what I think is interesting about this is it is instructional. It is, of course, as you say, not going to tell you how to get from, you know, point A to point B in terms of, uh, you know, day-to-day, like, how do I just navigate the world? But it does tell you in some sense this is the direction that you should take here, the pitfalls. But, of course, a lot of people are probably thinking, well, an allegorical map, again, this is a map of something that is not real. It's a map of something that is not a physical location. It doesn't really deal with geography. It's dealing with abstract ideas and things that exist only in our heads. But the crazy thing is when you start looking at maps and our history with maps and even Mm -hmm. our future with maps, Th- that same description applies to uh, to even our more hard-boiled um, uh, maps that deal with physical locations. We're still bringing in all of this mental junk uh, and, and laying that out as part of the map-making process. It's true. Like, think about the last time that you uh, just jotted down a quick map for someone and gave them directions. Mm-hmm. As you were doing that and you were saying, here's the gas station on the left, um, you know, there's all these different memories that you have flooding your brain about that gas station or here's the school I went to or so on and so forth. So you might be putting landmarks on there, but it's all informed by your past experience. Yeah. And Um, and even as you just find yourself like driving around town or taking the train to work, inevitably you're you're crossing things, you're you're passing by things that have some sort of significance to yourself and they start ticking off in the the background. You know, you're kind of like, oh, that's the place I had that really good sandwich that time. That's that place where that uh, that spider uh, leapt out of my soup. I don't know. You know <laughs> whatever the memory may be, uh, we can't help but build an informal map out of those experiences. Yeah, I was thinking about the writer Pat Conroy as well. He's a southern writer in the United States, and uh, a lot of his fiction draws upon the landscape and the sort of stories it tells. Mm-hmm. And he has a, a, a semi-famous quote uh, that says, My wound is geography. It's also my anchorage and my port of call. So if you think about this, map is really storytelling. Um, mm-hmm. It's, you know, drawing from our experience, but also our imagination of what could be. 
And this is probably what we're all trying to get to right now is, you know, the million dollar question, what is happening in our brains when we are considering maps in terms of our own personal autobiography, but also um, just trying to navigate the world? I guess what we need to think about then is, um, is, is the brain in absence of the map. You know, mm-hmm. what happens when the map is, is almost entirely internalized? And one of the, the best examples of that, the one, one that we've, uh, we've actually studied scientifically, um, has to do with the London cab drivers. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people out there have heard about this, the fact that their hippocampuses are larger than non-cab uh, drivers in London. But before we talk about that a little bit more, I wanted to just sort of uh, lay out the landscape of London for everyone. Um, the streets that comprise the city, they sprawl beyond Greater London, and they are a tangle of ancient yes. streets. And people have actually referred to them before as a plate of spaghetti. Yeah, this isn't like a modern U.S. city where somebody came out, laid out a bunch of grid work, and said, all right, you're going to put streets here going down, streets here going across, a park here, and that's going to be the city. Yeah, boom. It, yeah, this is a place that it's more like sediment, city as sediment, like over the years, different layers have accumulated. And if you walk through London, you're looking over here. Here's this modern skyscraper that looks like a pickle. Uh, here's <laughs> here's some ancient Roman ruins. Right. Here's some sort of like uh, mid, uh, mid-20th century sort of communist-looking building that mm-hmm. looks like just an ugly box. And it's all just a complete it, – it's like history threw up this city, and you have to sort of navigate the chunks and half-digested bits that is London. It's true. You have names that change mm-hmm. um, just, you know, suddenly. and they, There's not a lot of consistency with, with the way that the names go and are um, going through the actual city. And then you have a lack of house numbers on some streets. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem to be important to everyone um, in every location. And it can take a London cabbie two to four years of training to master the 25,000 streets streets that dart out in the six-mile radius um, from Charing Cross area. It's called the uh, the knowledge. That's right. Um, This training is a culmination of what they will finally sit down and be tested on called, as you say, the knowledge, which I love because it just sounds like so mysterious and wonderful, like you're about to go through a portal. Um, But yeah, the knowledge is basically a a series of sit-down tests with an examiner who tells the cabbie where she or he wants to go. And then the cabbie has to tell the examiner the exact turn-by-turn route that he or she will take, including the side of the street that the journey begins on. It reminds me a lot of uh, Mark Twain's Life on the Mississippi, uh, which I remember reading as a child and being dreadfully bored by it because it's a lot of Mark Twain talking about being on, on the Mississippi and, and about how one navigates the Mississippi. But, it's, uh, but it was really similar in that you had these, uh, these guys that had to just memorize, just had to commit to, to memory all of these details of, of the river and about its depth and, which, and, and how navigable different portions of the river were going to be at a given time. Right, and that's actually what all of us are doing all the time, but London cab drivers in particular are really paying attention to yeah, this. Yeah, they're right? dealing with a very complex uh, street system, like you said. Numbers not, not aren't necessarily where they need to be. You're dealing with the, with the various flow and flux of traffic. And as a result, their hippocampus, which is located in the brain's temporal lobe and is responsible for uh, navigating, starts to get bigger and bigger. And the more years that they're on the job, the bigger the hippocampus. All right, so most people who have a job that involves sitting, you might think, well, your your rear end might grow over time. The rear end of the hippocampus grows over time, swells with this knowledge, if you will. Yes, it does, but when you retire, 
it shrinks back down to normal. <laughs> That's the thing. Um, so, and also, this is interesting too. Uh, when they found, when they actually did a couple of more follow-up tests, because the hippocampus uh, was a 2000 study, and in 2008 they did a follow-up, and they found that the hippocampus was really only activated at the beginning of a trip, and then other parts of the brain started to take over. And there have been there have been some studies too that have uh, suggested that there's a trade-off in uh, cognitive talents that uh, as a taxi driver becomes more and more uh, equipped to navigate this complex uh, road system their uh, their uh, their other modes of memory kind of uh, kind of dim just a little bit really so the back swells the uh, the front portion shrinks a little huh okay well there you go um i wanted to also talk about neurons and how they are influencing the way that we actually are able to follow directions According to Barbara Trusky in her article, Distortions in Memory for Maps, um, we have neurons in our brains that are biased toward horizontal and vertical arrangements, which I think is trippy in and of itself. Uh, in fact, the neurons greatly outnumber the neurons that are dedicated to diagonal arrangement. But when you start to think about our planet, mm-hmm. which is biased on this XY axis, it begins to make sense because we have really strong verticals in the trees that we see, right? right? And then the ground provides a flat horizon, and even when you look out, you see the horizon. So it makes sense that we evolved to have more neurons that would appreciate this XY axis. So we're, yeah, so we're more in, in line with the rook on a uh, on a chessboard, just up and down, side yes. to side. Yes, and think Not about so much a bishop or a queen. Right, and think about those trees as sort of proto-landmarks mm-hmm. for, for all animals, really. And then I was reminded of that sleight-of-hand trick that we discussed when we talked about the science of magicians. Yes. And um, the fact that not just magicians use this trick, but pickpocketers also will take advantage of the fact that we have this XY axis. And they do this by moving their hands uh, in an arc rather than horizontally. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that we have saccades, and these are the fastest movements in the human body, and it ha- occurs in our eyes, right? And they automatically move their gaze to the end point um, of what they think is going to happen. So if you were to move your hand horizontally, then you could track it really well. But pickpocketers, uh, magicians, illusionists, they all do this sort of arc because it's very hard to track it accurately and you're distracted. It also reminds me of zigzagging, like the whole deal, uh, an alligator's chasing you, right? What do you do? Yeah. Run diagonal. That's right. Mess with their ability to to, uh, determine when something is actually moving uh, sideways. And if you think that that's not enough of a case to say that we prefer this sort of XY axis, think about the London tube map. Yes. Back to uh, to London. The the fabulous London tube map where it's really... and I'm fairly new to all of this. Um, uh, I mean, I've, I've been to London. Uh, you know, I've certainly used that tube map to get around uh, before. But uh, but I really never stopped to realize how important it was and how groundbreaking that mm-hmm. map design was. And certainly you see its influence everywhere. You see various versions of it. You see other uh, public transportation systems that mimic that style. It's it's become sort of something of a modern art motif. Yeah, it's definitely iconic, um, and the reason why it works so well is that it plays again to the XY axis. Harry Beck is the person who um, designed this map in 1933, or rather he did it a couple years before that, but they didn't adopt it until 1933. And what he did is he took all those squirrely lines, that plate of spaghetti, and tried to make sense of it by only uh, delineating all the stations and the connecting stations in 45-degree angles. 
So the effect, while being really modern to the eye, I think, um, is that it really cleaned up that space and it made it much more logical for people to understand the system. And it really becomes one's understanding of the city. That's what uh, what really fascinates me. Yeah. You know? I mean, you tend to sort of define your space based on the roads and paths you have to travel. Like uh, here in Atlanta, we live in a, a pretty pretty uh, non-complex uh, city as far as public transportation goes. We got north and south, east and west. We've got uh, we've got eighty five and seventy five going up the center. We've got mm-hmm. twenty going through in the middle. So it's 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 pretty. It's pretty simple. And then you have the Highway 285 looping the Yeah, whole looping thing. around and, and trapping everybody inside. <laughs> because that's our plan, is that you just roar enough traffic through there, then the zombies can't get in or out, depending on what the scenario is. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, but it's difficult to not think about one's surroundings in those terms. Like thinking about where are you in terms of the perimeter. I mean, here in Atlanta, people tend to talk about things being OTP outside the outside perimeter. The perimeter. Like yeah. you do not want to go OTP. Even if you have a friend that lives out there, God bless them, but they're OTP and they just invited you to dinner, you might have to make up an excuse, that kind of thing. Uh, and then inside the perimeter is uh, is the preferred distance of travel. Uh, and, and then you, you think of it in those those different sections. You know? That's right. The mental map does mm-hmm. actually map to the system that is in place. And apparently this London tube map was so important to so many people that when they made changes to it, there was a big go uh, like, whoa, what are you doing? You've changed our reality, basically. Yeah. You've changed the thing that forms the world that we live in. Even though this map is inaccurate, right? <laughs> because it's not, nothing's at the 45 degree angle that it's depicted in. Mm-hmm. It was still like, that's how I see London, at least for some people. Right. Uh, other people sort of said this is fine, it's more accurate. But, you know, that's that's what happens when something becomes iconic, I suppose. Well, I think that's what's ultimately at heart when when people had this reaction to Pluto uh, losing its uh, planet sta- status, you know? Like, ultimately, nobody really cares about Pluto, really. It's 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 out there. It's not really yeah, a Nobody planet. really has a it's, stake in Pluto. Yeah, Pluto's a long ways off <laughs> and, and pretty insignificant uh, compared to the other planets. But it was part of that map that we mm-hmm. grew up seeing. It was... It, and that map was how we defined our place in the solar system and in the, the universe at large. And suddenly that changed, and people were like, whoa, that changes everything in a small and perhaps insignificant way to, to normal life and, and the way you live your daily life, but it still shifted your universe. Yeah, and it's funny because even though we know life is, is uh, something that is constantly changing, mm-hmm. that we're just transients here, really, all of us. We still can't help but try to nail things down and say, this is not going to change. So we're going to map it. Yes. Uh, we're going to look up at the night sky and say, that is belongs to us. And you know, anytime sort of those things are tinkered with, it reminds us of this transient quality of life. Yeah, anyone who has a GPS device that's not attached to their phone knows this deal. Because uh, like, like with me, I know that there is a way to take it and hook it up to a computer and probably pay some stupid sum of money to get the maps updated Mm -hmm. but that's a lot of trouble and and money i don't want to spend so i end up with old maps so it'll you know it'll occasionally send us in a direction that uh towards a street that is no longer there (laughs) or it will ignore a street that it doesn't know exists yet (laughs) and there but there's there is something troubling about that you're like why are the roads changing why is the world changing around me The, the map should have kept it as it is yeah, that happened to me recently, and the the road just dead ended, mm-hmm. and it was supposed to go for like another twenty miles. And nothing makes you feel more helpless than relying on you know a clunky GPS. Yes, uh, to feel like a rube in the middle of nowhere and appreciate maps, uh, at least the written ones. So um, I did want to bring this up about Americans and their apparent ability to excel at directions. 
Ah. Okay. Uh, geographer Ham de Buge has made the claim that we Americans... Uh, and he's Dutch, correct? Uh, he's German. German. That we have a better sense of direction than our European counterparts uh, that live in these sort of spaghetti-streeted uh, uh, cities because we have exercised that part of our brain because we are so uh, used to this grid-like system in the United States where most major cities are very logical and planned out on this XY axis. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you could make a case for that. Certainly, in some, like when you go to a city like uh, Savannah, Georgia, you know, where they yeah. have the, like, it's pretty laid out on a grid, or the, the the main part of the city is anyway, and you have, here's a street, and here's a street coming from the other direction, here's a park, here's, mm-hmm. a, I mean, it's just, it's like a grid work, it's like a, it's like a, uh, a board for a, a card game. Yeah, and even though they have the, the parks, they have successive parks, and so there's a pattern of that, and so you know that you're going to have to go around these parks in X, Y, Z configuration. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there you go. But I think it's surprising to people because when you think about Americans and you think about maps uh, <laughs> and our ability to actually find other countries on the map, it's pretty dismal. Well, you know, we've talked before about how much our brain likes to find patterns and, and recognize patterns with these pattern recognition uh, engines. So there's something comforting, comforting about knowing that, all right, well, in another street, um, I know what, about what's going to happen. There's going to be a park up there. Or in another couple of streets, there's going to be this or that. You know, it's a, you, you want this reg- regularity in your world around you. Yeah, and um, for all the people out there, when you go on vacation and you're the map person, this is for you. Um, I don't know if you guys like to do this, but I love to study the map beforehand so that I do start to create some sort of reality of this new city for myself and my brain and orient myself as quickly as possible. I, I tend to wait more towards the last minute to do that, but I, I do find some, there is something satisfying about it. Like when you're actually on the like flying into the city, and the, so the city in a sense is about to become real mm-hmm. to you. Then I uh, engage with the map and I start looking at it and I you know, see where I'm going to be, what's around it, what where I can eat in the general vicinity, and and the place becomes a little more real before I get there. Ah. Uh. And I'm already imagining that, which we'll talk about in a moment. We're going to take a break. Um, When we get back, we are going to talk about this idea of maps from our imagination that become completely real to us. All right, we're back, and we're going to talk about maps as they relate to storytelling and the the creation of unreal places. And memory. And memory. Uh, we've talked before about the memory palace, of course, and this is the, the method where you use our fabulous gift for spatial uh, processing mm-hmm. and use that to create an imagined place full of the things that you need to memorize. Yeah, and think about it this way, too. Um, when you go into a room and you perceive a room, you're not just getting an image of the room. What that you know, what you're perceiving is actually your mind creating those dimensions of a room for you. So that's very important in terms of how we remember things and how we map out our worlds. Yeah, like the anytime you check out a new restaurant, re- restaurant right? Mm-hmm. Your your brain has to develop that map to the bathroom, and then once you have that data, it's 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 important. It's <laughs> it's valuable, and you share it with other people. The other person at the table goes to get up, and they're like, "Where's the? Do you know where the bathroom is?" And like, "Yes, let me share that mental map with you." Yeah, you're like, okay, see that fabulous mustachioed man over there? Take a right, and so on and so forth. See how it becomes uh, very much a part of what sticks out to your me- in your memory, and this is one of the uh, 
bedrocks of this memory palace idea of how you can create a, a whole world in your mind and remember a bunch of random things by tagging them to these surreal objects of this story that you tell yourself. I also can't help but be reminded of, uh, of the mandala, which mm-hmm. uh, comes from the Sanskrit for circle. And this is a motif you see uh, again and again, especially in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, where it is the es- essentially one uses this image to help build this virtual place in one's mind. You have a, a map on, on paper or on canvas or in sand, and you use that to form this uh, spiritually significant map in your mind. And, it's, uh, and, and that's used for, uh, uh, you know, for meditation. So what I think is interesting about this is that you're basically talking about the intersection between reality and imagination. Yes. And we've seen this um, used, uh, not necessarily the mandala per se, but the idea of this transposing um, your imagination onto reality in fiction. Yes. Um, and I was thinking about uh, token and how important that is as a narrative device to create this world for the readers that you can begin to reference because you're taking a bird's eye view of this world that Token has created. Yes, definitely the uh, the maps of Middle Earth in uh, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Those were those were really big for me early on. Before I was able to read those books because my my dad had them in these like tattered paperbacks. I remember like in third grade. Uh, probably even younger, getting those out, and I would look at the maps, and the maps amaze me, you know, because you're you're poring over this data, and you're looking at things like Mirkwood, and uh, you're looking at uh, um, at, at uh, you know the, uh, the the place where the, the hobbits live. You're looking at where the the, the evil creatures live mm-hmm. in Mordor, and you're you're forming this uh, this world view. And then as you you get older and you deal with these maps too, you're trying to figure out well what. What, what is this model after? What does this represent in the real world, either geographically or politically? Because you're building up layers of this world, right? Yeah. So you're you're looking like, all right, how do I how do I interpret this map in terms of of, of the actual Earth? How do I interpret it in terms of the world as as the author was seeing it uh, in, in those days? Uh, it's it's really fascinating, and it's become a a hallmark uh, certainly of any kind of world creating fantasy, be it. Um, the works of, say, George R. R. Martin, who's really big right now. Uh, Game of Thrones, uh, uh, the, the TV sh- uh, series based on his work, mm-hmm. actually starts off with a map. It's like a, a sweeping computer-animated map of the world in which the show takes place. Um, other uh, big examples of that um, are Scott Baker's um, Second Apocalypse books. Uh, he has a, a really awesome map of the three seas in there. So you're you're pouring over that, and you're trying to figure out, all right, well, is, is this this portion of the map? This is kind of his Middle East, I guess, mm-hmm. and this is this is kind of his Baltic region. And then and then this is where he's put the the uh, the iconic evil portion of the of the of the planet. Um, it's uh, it's it's fascinating to think of all that that stuff. Uh, and also, it's also interesting to think of the authors who create a map. But don't actually share that with the readers, because um, certainly right, if, right. You're, if you're create if you're engaging in, in world creation, you're you're creating a new planet, new cultures, new geography. All of this stuff needs to come together in a form that the author understands in order to write about it. Mm-hmm. So, like a lot of the stuff that that uh, later came out from Tolkien, it's stuff that he never intended for a wider audience to view. He wrote that for himself so that he could create these books. So a map for yourself so that you, the writer, could then write the story. Yeah. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, one of my favorite authors is a guy named Brian McNaughton, and he wrote a a book called Throne of Bones, which all takes place in the same dark fantasy setting. And 
I am told that he, and I understand from, from what I've read about him, he did have a map of this world that he mm-hmm. created. But it's it's no one's ever, it's never been published, uh, as far as I know. No one outside of a small number of people have ever seen it, uh, because his his characters were not the kind of people who engaged in a sweeping understanding of their own world. Mm-hmm. Whereas, say Gandalf, in Lord of the Rings, like he's the kind of guy who would watch whatever Middle Earth's version of BBC News was. You know, he'd, he'd be the one who would tune in and be like, I wonder what the weather's going to be tomorrow. I wonder what's going on in, uh, uh, up there in Hobbit Country. You know, he would, mm-hmm. he would have that wider understanding, whereas the characters in, uh, in Brian McNaughton's book, they were more concerned with their day-to-day and maybe you know, figuring out what they were going to eat. Uh, in the next hour or, or whatever their own petty sufferings happen to be. So the reader didn't need the bird's eye right, view yeah. in that sense. Um, I was thinking about how place is so incredibly important in fiction in our own lives, obviously. Um, and then I was thinking about this guy named Austin Tappenwright. And he is someone who took his uh, childhood creation of a country called Islandia into adulthood with him. So I don't. When you were younger, did you ever create a sort of fantasy world or? Yes, um, all the time because I um, pretty early on I got into Dungeons and Dragons, mm-hmm. uh, which the various supplements you would get into Dungeons for Dungeons and Dragons would come with maps, which were, were all pretty fascinating. I remember one supplement in particular had um, had treasure maps. Yeah. That, that you could use, yeah. and and so I would I would in, inevitably end up plotting out my own little scenarios and own little world. So I would draw out all these maps. And then later when I got into actually writing and attempting to write uh, fiction, I would also envision these uh, fantastic worlds and try and map them out on paper and also in my own head. And I guess I'm still doing that. Well, my brother and I also did this, and we came up with Marijuana Island. (laughs) We did not know what marijuana meant. Uh, But Uh Kronja was this this ape who uh, ruled this island. But anyway... what was his name? Kronja. Kronja. Don't ask me why. Well, that sounds like that would be a great... uh, bit of slang for it, you know? Yeah, ganja. like... Cron- <laughs> sounds a lot like uh, ganja. <laughs> Going to yeah. Marijuana Island to get some kronja. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we never sort of uh, took this world with us into adulthood. But this guy that I talked about, Austin Tappan Wright, his Islandia, he took from his boyhood, and he spent 20 years off and on developing this world. Um, and talking about it it's really exhaustively, like the geography, mm-hmm. the people, the language. He made up a language for them. Um, the politics, the, the 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 laws, and um, this he said was a small kingdom at the southern tip of the Korean subcontinent. I mean, he really put a ton of uh, thought into this. He created maps for it, and at the uh, time of his death, at forty eight, he was in a car accident, un- unfortunately. Um, he had twenty three hundred longhand pages dedicated to this world that he made up, this country actually. And his wife and then later his daughter pared it down to 1,000 pages and published it in 1942. It, it was a sensation wow. because it really captured people's imaginations. I mean, here is someone who made such an authentic world for others to enjoy. He did not intend that, of course. It was his own personal obsession. But I do think it's fascinating that he was able to weave together uh, this, this uh, country to the point where people just wanted to go there. And and he even said on his own travels um, across the world, he would, he would look at something, and his family said that he would look out the mountains and say, ah, oh, that reminds me of Islandia. That's how real it was in his brain. Well, and then it makes you wonder, too. We were talking about how the world around us forms a map, but then the maps that we have form that world for us. 
So to what extent is is this created world of his more real than the the, the real world that he inhabits, you know? Yeah. The more the, he know he he knew it better. I'm he thinking, did. I, than, I th- than the actual real world. I think he did. I mean, think about this. It started in his childhood, let's say around ten years old, up until mm-hmm. he was forty-eight years old. Wow. It dominated the the most of his life. It reminds me a little bit of this uh, author by the name of M. A. R. Barker, and he was a professor of uh, Urdu and South Asian studies. Really, really brilliant man. Uh, you know, just steeped in the lore and history and geography. Of um, of Asia, and he created in his spare time, uh, his full time professor uh, most of his career. But in his spare time, he created a fantasy setting called uh, uh, Tekumel, and that's T E K U M E L. There's a really cool website that has all the stuff on it. And it, he ended up writing a few different sort of pulpy, but very creative fantasy novels set there, and also one of the earliest, uh, like a contemporary of Dungeons and Dragons role playing game. Uh, and it's just like really, really rich setting, kind of like imagine Lord of the Rings, except instead of based upon Western and Norse models of mythology, mm-hmm. based entirely upon uh, Eastern motifs and models. And that's basically uh, the world that M.A.R. Uh, Barker created. He, he sadly died, I think, last year, but uh, but uh, certainly created one of those worlds where you feel like this world was more real for him, uh, maybe by um, by only a certain margin, but still. It, it, almost as real as the real world that he uh, concerned himself with. And I think it's interesting how we can't help but create this sort of map, whether or not we're doing it, mm-hmm. know, know that we're doing it, you know what I'm saying, whether or not we know that we're sitting down like Austin Tapp and Wright and, and creating this whole mythology, or just in our heads when we're randomly thinking about our lives, you know, how much of that is this sort of map construct. Um, and we will talk more about maps, um, the history of maps, and a bit more about the science of it in a couple of their podcasts, but we wanted to touch on this um, idea of maps as storytelling. Yeah. So I'm going to leave you with a little quote from Maphead from Ken Jennings. He says, and, and he, of course, is someone who uh, loves maps, is a Maphead. Um, he says, maps are just too convenient and too tempting a way to understand place. There's a tension in them. Almost every map will show us two kinds of places places where we've been and places where we've never been. The nearby and the far away exist together in the same frame, our world undeniably connected to the new and unexpected. We can understand at a glance our place in the universe, our potential to go and see new things, and the way to get back home afterward. Very nice. All right, well, let's uh, call the robot over here, and we'll read a quick listener mail. All right, this one comes to us from Scott, who's writing about our bats episode. He says, hi, guys, I love the podcast. I listen while I'm at work all alone on second shift, and it informs me as well as entertains. I love the the show about bats. The first thing I thought of is about when I go mountain biking at night in the woods. Bats will swoop down and fly along in front of us, staying in in the beam of our uh, helmet lights. Sometimes they are 20 feet away, and sometimes they are close enough to see the hairs on their body and hear their leathery wings flapping. It doesn't happen all the time, but a half dozen times a year is thrilling. Second, when we were kids, we would throw pebbles up in the air at dusk and watch the the bats come zipping in to intercept the pebbles, probably thinking it was a juicy bug meal. I know it sounds cruel now, but we were kids and and we didn't hurt the bats. We didn't throw anything at them. 
Last, I live in an old house, and once every few years, we'll have a bat visitor, usually in early summer, flapping around the house. My surefire way to safely remove them is to hold up a sheet or blanket and slowly walk them into a corner and then gently lower the blanket to the floor. Pick it up and ever so gently bring it outside and unfurl. I haven't lost a bat yet this way. Thanks again, Scott. All right. Bat catcher. Yeah, so if uh, if you guys have anything you would like to share, certainly about bats and catching bats safely in your household, that kind of thing, or about maps, what's your relationship with maps? Uh, do you have memories of, uh, like like I feel a lot of us do, of looking at these maps as a kid before you really had any understanding of the world, trying to piece it together from that that map on the wall? Looking at faraway places, wondering yeah. what it's like. Or certainly the old maps. I remember we had one of these old world maps on the wall when I was a kid where all the all the all the continents are kind of malformed and kind of weird, mm-hmm. and there may have been a dragon or two. Uh, there'd be dragons, right? Um, let us know what you think about all that. Uh, and uh, if you're into fantasy, what do you think about uh, about the fantasy worlds that your favorite authors create uh, in map form? What are some of your favorite maps of unreal places? We'd love to hear about it. You can find us on Tumblr and Facebook. On both of those, we are stuff to blow your mind. And you can also find us on Twitter, where our handle is Blow the Mind. And you can always drop us a line at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.